0: And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics
1: and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Very few Americans have lived more history than Bill Daley, the son of the legendary late Richard J. Daley, the mayor of Chicago from 1955 to 1976, the old uh, boss of the Democrat machine, the kingmaker, uh... As a uh, Democratic Party leader And then uh, the brother of uh, another mayor of Chicago Richard M. Daley But in his own right uh, The Secretary of Commerce under uh, President Bill Clinton And then Chief of Staff to uh, President Barack Obama Bill Daley has a rich lore of stories That uh, paint the picture of the last half century in our country And I sat down with him the other day uh, to hear some of them Bill Daley, welcome. Always good to see you. Thank you, dear. Uh The name Daley in Chicago is a little like the Windsors in England or the Kennedys in Massachusetts. Uh, and you grew up really in the, in the sort of the in the zenith of your father's uh, power and influence uh, here. Uh, what was that like? What was it like to be a kid growing up when the mayor was? In charge of everything,
0: yeah it you know early on, obviously, when my dad was first selected, I was only seven, so the impact was not as great as uh, for my as it was for my older siblings and times were different it wasn't as though it wasn't as public people didn't press gave wide birth to families they didn't focus on it and and so it was we always thought we were pretty normal, lived in a neighborhood with walked to school with you know a mix of Economics, yeah, you know, my dad was mayor, and he had cops in front and back of the house, but other than that, it was not too different than every other house and you know, my grandparents lived with us as most did in the neighborhood, and we went to school with everybody whose parents were everything from cops to you know son unemployed and maybe some in prison and so it didn't you didn't feel it until as you got older, obviously in the sixties when the social change, and then the war, and, and the impact of all of that, uh, and the sort of press attention that came to it later on.
1: But um, how it, much did you guys talk about politics? Was that was politics all
0: around yeah, you? All around us. It was. Um, uh, you know, my dad was early on was. Um, you know, he, he had a, he had a pretty good temper in public and, you know, when he wanted to make a point, he could make it. So my mother was always trying to get him to, you know, calm down, relax, but we talked politics a lot. Uh, he'd come home at dinner just about every night at home and sit around the table and, and talk it, but it was, um, it wasn't all consuming, but it was, yeah you know, we talked about it all the time. Now, uh,
1: your brother, Rich, uh, told me once that your dad would then go out. He would have to go to wakes, and he mm-hmm. would go to public events and so on. Sometimes you kids would jump into the limo with him so you could spend some time with him.
0: Right. We um He'd come home, the usual MO, and we only lived, uh, where we lived in Ridgeport was only about 12 minutes from downtown, so he could come home. We'd go out in the backyard, throw the baseball around play catch for a while he'd have dinner he'd shower put a fresh shirt on he was pretty meticulous about his appearance yeah and then he'd go out to wakes or a reception he rarely stayed for dinner at events and we'd jump in uh you know and talk to him on the way to wake i remember going to wake going with him one night he said come on let's you know we'll go and um and he said, "Well, you come on into the wake." I said, "I don't know this guy. <laughs> I don't know who it is." And he's like, "I don't worry about it. Just you know." <laughs> so he'd go in, and it was always a big deal. And I still have people come up to me today and say, "Oh, your father came to my grandmother's wake or my grandfather's wake," and and it was part of the politics of, of the day. Uh, it was all personal.
1: Yeah, politics. explain explain a little bit more for people who mm-hmm. aren't from Chicago where this is sort of baked into. Well, there was a system. The
0: system was an organization, opponents called it a machine, that was broken down from the bottom up at a precinct level with a precinct captain, almost all the captains, or helpers were employees of different government entities, the city or the state, if it was Democratic control and, and uh, uh, county. And it was a real organization from bottom up, very structured, very organized, and then from a precinct level to a ward level. And then the ward committeeman was on the Democratic Central Committee's uh, organization. And it was a system that – that. Uh, honored loyalty and results and and the precinct captain was the contact of state city government from a broken down tree to a problem with a family and obviously that captain then hoped for loyalty on election day for the candidates of the democratic party so it was an entire system and generally got it and generally got it um sometimes maybe a little too 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 much loyalty (laughs) um but but um uh it it Worked. It was. It brought government down. It wasn't an eight hundred number. You didn't call if you had a problem, an eight hundred number to report a tree down or a pothole. You went to the precinct captain, and he somehow magically, maybe, uh, and obviously, if the captain or the ward committeeman was more important, they got quicker results. Um, and, and it was just a system. It was. It was obviously developed in the early twentieth century, uh, very much around immigrants and and. But we, Chicago was one of the last cities, big cities, with that structure still pretty much in place.
1: Your dad uh, was uh, so interesting, though, because he consolidated that power. He was both chairman of the party right. and mayor, which really unified the two kind of hubs uh, of power uh, in a way that some of his predecessors didn't. And this gave him enormous yeah. influence.
0: It gave him, you know, he was the chairman of the Democratic Party of Cook County and ran against the incumbent city mayor of Chicago and beat him, um, and then kept those two positions obviously. So no one could really challenge him politically within the organization. And there wasn't at the time the sort of out of the box. There were a few, um, uh, what you, what what would be called reformers, Adlai Stevenson or Paul Douglas, who were not part of the organization, but yet lived within that organization. But your dad final. started working yeah. for Adlai Stevenson. Right. He was revenue director for Governor Stevenson back in the late 40s after he had run for sheriff and lost, the only election he lost, and his mother told him she was glad he lost because in those days, the sheriff was the executioner of people. Uh-huh. So she didn't want him to have that role and um but but he but so there was a system that everyone w- relatively worked within that then began to break down in the 60s and 70s and then after his death it really began to diminish in his government but
1: changed. but you know and you know the criticism mm-hmm. is uh that uh, people shouldn't uh, be uh, awarded public services on the basis of political loyalty maybe a few people were on the payroll who weren't exactly working terribly hard all the time right. on their government jobs. Uh, and that there was, you know, there was, there was a tolerance of corruption uh, and so on. But um, what's been gained and what's been lost?
0: Well, it's hard to to see this. So we've reformed the system, you know, in those days, the organization raised the money and, Dole the money out for candidates, basically. Now everybody raises their own money. Every wealthy person can throw in hundreds of millions of dollars or whatever. Is that really a better system? I, I don't know. I, I think it's debatable. To be frank with you, um, yes. There you were- also
1: had he. You, your dad had. I mean, control. Uh, you know, Mike Royko wrote his book "Boss," and 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 you know, I was a young reformer when I came to mm-hmm. town that. Uh, and. So there was a great uh, sense that too much cons- of too much consolidation of power, and yet uh, he was able to get things done in the legislature. He certainly controlled the city council in a way that allowed him to uh, respond to problems. His
0: his the the phrase he liked most, which he used in his first inaugural, I think in 1955, was "Good politics is good government, and good government is good politics. If you do your politics right." uh that's good governing and vice versa so um there was enormous consolidation of power but you know it wasn't unchecked because in spite of the fact that there was a system the voters really did vote and at times his candidates lost not everybody won and not every he went to the voters one day one year with a uh, a bond issue to vote on more police state, more police, and more construction, and, and it lost. And That was the last one and only time he ever went to the voters with a bond issue because it meant a tax increase, and people didn't like that. He,
1: uh, he also, I think people don't uh, who aren't steeped in Chicago history, they, they associate Mayor Daley with the machine. But he was seen as kind of a visionary mayor in yeah. the 1950s and early 60s
0: in terms of how he viewed cities, the building that he –
1: he, he always, he
0: even though he had this enormous political power, what he enjoyed most. And I remember one night, about a month before he died, it was after a rally for Jimmy Carter. It was at one of those old 1976, parade, yeah. 1976, and we were riding home. And everybody who spoke that night really laid it on about how great he was in the politics and Jack Kennedy's election and blah blah, 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 blah. And I said, boy, they really buttered you up tonight, everybody who spoke, including President Carter, but then Governor Carter. And he said, yeah, but he said, you know, what I really want to be remembered for is what we did in the city and the change in the city. So he was a reformer as a governing mayor and doing things to protect the city, build in the neighborhoods, um, and was viewed nationally as someone who was really bringing Chicago back from a pretty dark period, at least viewed nationally in a dark way, uh, to a city that had a lot going on. Modern city. Modern city. Global city. He had uh, young you know, reformers all on his staff. He brought in the whiz kids, sort of, they called them, uh, in a number of departments. It wasn't just a bunch of old political hacks. And so he... And he so there and, were the hacks, too. There were the hacks there. Yes. I, I said not, not just hacks. But he also was very good at finance as revenue director for the state. And so his forte was the finances for the city and kept them very strong and was a big believer in unions, even though there was never a city contract. There was no union that had a contract with the city of Chicago uh, during his 21 years. It was a handshake. And his attitude was, if my handshake's not good, well, that's too bad for you. But he didn't believe in in contracts with the city employee unions. But yet they did quite well under him.
1: You, uh, you once told me a story about someone who came in and, and wanted to put in for a commissioner's job. And what did your what did yeah. your dad tell him? He
0: had plenty of people come in when there'd be an opening for a big job and commissioner. He'd say, "Well, look, at, I got a deputy commissioner spot. It pays five thousand dollars. Left, take a small job. You last longer." <laughs>
1: uh, and, and as I went,
0: I gone through my life on lots of different occasions. <laughs> in Washington and other places. The but wisdom of I, that I, team. I, it, it really is. And you look at a lot of people, as you know, plenty of people who've run for office or wanted big jobs. And, uh, and I've often thought, as I've gotten bigger jobs, at, in, <laughs> I, I should have listened to him. maybe. You,
1: uh, you mentioned Jack Kennedy. Yeah. Uh, people He's very much associated with the election of John F. Kennedy. Uh, you must have known Kennedy as a yeah. kid.
0: Yeah. I remember uh, – Uh, My dad was close to him for a long time. Matter of fact, one of the first speeches Senator Kennedy gave was right after my dad became chairman of the Democratic Party. I think in 54 or 55, he came out as a guest speaker. It was one of the first speeches west of the Alleghenies that Kennedy did. Um,
1: The Kennedy family owned the merchandise. They owned the merchandise. Sergeant Shriver Uh, was running it. He was president of the school board. And my
0: dad knew Joe Kennedy after he bought the— Merchandise mark. So there was a connection citywide, and then uh, uh, Kennedy came. So he came out and spoke to the Democratic Party of Cook County in '55 or '54, um, even before my dad was mayor. But uh, but um, so he, they had a long relationship. And in '56, my dad tried to be helpful at that convention when he would try to be vice president, mm-hmm. and then leading up to 1960. Uh, and played a big role at the convention. We were there. Um, we sat for like 12 hours the day of the nomination uh, on the floor with signs. And we had signs, my brother John and I, I was like 12 or something. And ja- we had a sign, Oregon's for Kennedy. You know, <laughs> we were sitting in the Illinois delegation. Not quite sure why we had that sign. But we were there like for 12 hours, and then the accepted speech. And then that summer, um, we were. At, we, my parents had a home. up. They rented up in Michigan at the time. I remember answering the phone one night, and voice said, is uh, Mayor Daley there? I said, no. He said, who's this? I said, Bill. He said, well, this is Jack Kennedy. He said, will you tell him I called? And I'm like, okay, no problem. Yeah. You know, so, But uh, they were close. And it was the second time I ever saw my father cry, uh, once when his dad died, and then uh, November 22nd, 1963.
1: Did he – how much of um, a role do you think he did play? I mean – we know what the history is. How much of a role did he play in counseling uh, Jack Kennedy leading up to 1960? You know, Adlai Stevenson, for whom he worked and who had been governor of Illinois, w- wanted to be the nominee uh, ultimately for a third time. Uh, how, did, how did your dad navigate uh, all dad,
0: that? My um, dad knew that Adlai. Um, wasn't going to make the decision early enough. And the system was changing. Primer was playing more of an effective role. You couldn't just get the sort of leaders of the party. And he went to Adelaide early on, probably in 57, 58, maybe 59 at the latest, and said, Are you going to run? And he said, No. He said, Okay, we're going to, I'm going with Kennedy and we're going to try to push that. Lyndon Johnson came to see him and, My dad used to always tell the story Johnson. When my dad told him he was with Kennedy, Johnson said, "Well, you're the first guy who's been straight with me. Everybody else tells (laughs) me maybe." Um, And then at the actual convention, uh, and 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 uh, Eleanor Roosevelt called my dad. She was leading the charge to try to get uh, uh, Stevenson to stop Kennedy, and asked. She said, "I want to come to meet with you." And he said, "No, I'll come to see you." He drove out to was driven out to Pasadena to see her. My brothers went with him and told her, I'm sorry, I'm with Kennedy, and we're staying with Kennedy. And then Adelaide came onto the floor of the convention hall that night with a big demonstration they were trying to orchestrate. And they thought, because he wasn't a delegate, he wouldn't give a seat. But my dad had somebody get up and leave and and had Adelaide sit there. But my dad always respected Adelaide, went to when he passed away in London, Went to uh, his funeral. Went to the to London uh, with the delegation that Johnson appointed. So, uh, but he had enormous respect for Stevenson. But he also knew that he was hesitating, and you couldn't hesitate. He knew the game was changing. How much did did
1: uh, Catholicism and the notion of electing the first Catholic president mean to your dad? Well, it meant
0: a lot, a lot. I mean, it was the thought that you know, my dad grew up in a in an era that Catholics were very much. Um, Uh, shunted aside in many ways obviously many Catholics went into politics because that was one area you could succeed so it played an enormous part the thought that you get that boogeyman off the back of Catholics the next generation and for the future Um, uh, understood though that um, that it was a difficulty for Kennedy that he had to overcome Um, and and when you went to to a lot of the opposition to Kennedy downstate especially, in Illinois, there was a big piece of the anti-Catholic thing.
1: So this is a complete non sequitur, but I, I I heard this story, and it's so good that I need to share it with you, and I don't know if you've heard this story, but it sort of speaks to um, the whole role that your father played in this city. And the story was about Ann Burke, who's now a, on the Supreme Court of the state, but she was then a young playground instructor, and she wanted to start a Special Olympics, ultimately worked with, a, I guess, the Shriver family. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the, she got a letter from the—they uh, were going to have their ceremony, and she got a letter from Avery Brundage, who was the chairman of the Olympic, U.S. Olympic Commission. It was a cease and desist letter saying you can't use our name. And according to the story—Tim Shriver told me this story— uh, she went to your dad, and he's, and she was in tears— and, you know, she's just this playground instructor, but, and he, he uh, said, get me Avery Brundage. <laughs> and he gets him on the phone, and says, Avery, uh, and he explains the situation. He says, this young lady has this letter. I know it's a mistake, but I just wanted to double check with you. And he's listening, he says, not a mistake. Oh, I'm really surprised to hear that. And then he said to him, I guess Avery Brundage owned a hotel, one of the hotels around. Yeah, right downtown. on LaSalle Street. Yeah. And he said, Avery, you know, on another subject, yeah, uh, you know, my inspectors were over at your hotel. <laughs> a lot of problems there. a Lot of problems, and we may have to shut you down. And then he said, "Oh, you know, I, I knew it was a mistake." <laughs> and he handed the letter. He hung up and he handed the letter back to her and said, uh, "Don't worry about it." Yeah,
0: I, I, I I'm sure it's accurate. <laughs> okay. Uh, and Brundridge had an office for the, the Olympics out of that hotel. It was on. Uh, LaSalle Street and ended up the Democratic Party of Cook County ended up moving in those offices right. after Brundridge moved out um, yeah. but but that was that's how politics was in those days you know you you worked it out and for my dad you know for Brundridge or the Olympic Committee because it was about their money and their protecting that, that wasn't as important to him as doing the right thing and if he used his power for that purpose great
1: well, as the father of a special Olympian, right. I have to tell you, I, I love that story. We're going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with Bill Daley. Great. You mentioned earlier um, the 60s and uh, some of the uh, tumult of the 60s. If there, if there's one criticism that you hear about your dad, it's about race mm-hmm. and about uh, – uh, how uh, African-Americans were treated in Chicago, uh, you know, tr- traditionally, and about his handling of the city in the 60s when all of this erupted. Uh, what what was it from your vantage point uh, like when riots started erupting the city in the 60s? Uh, and what kinds of conversations did you have with your dad about You know, that?
0: he he was of a different generation, and he was of the generation that— believed or or much of it that you know the order was paramount and the system had to be protected obviously he was head of the system in Chicago so he believed that on the other hand there was this sort of you know uh, African Americans were very much part of the political system and had a lot of power in that system in Springfield, you had you know Ralph, they were
1: part of the alliance that got him elected in the first 1955.
0: Place. Absolutely, yeah. they were a big power of it. Bill Dawson, Ralph Metcalf. You know they were down. In, I remember him telling a story back when they were down in the legislature, and one of the hotels wouldn't allow an African American legislator. It may have been Ralph Metcalf at the time. A room, so they, you know, all the other, the rest of the Democrats, and there weren't that many. There were so few in the legislature, all moved out of that hotel and to another hotel. And Cecil Partie was the first president, was one of the and highest ranking, uh, was a former state senator, was the, became the president of the Illinois Senate at a time when he may have been one of the highest ranking local black uh, officials in the country.
1: And your father helped orchestrate. That. all of that yeah. and
0: and and made sure that the ballots you know the candidates were balanced with race and and religion and all of that but there's no doubt chicago's had a history for a very long time of a segregated city and race a big piece of it obviously there was a enormous influx of african-americans in the 40s and 50s uh into chicago from the south uh, and the clash of that ethnic city with that was a was a challenge for his entire period.
1: Yeah, Martin Luther King came here in 1966, and and uh, you know volumes have been written about his uh, experience here and dealing uh, with your with your dad and uh, over this issue of open housing. housing yeah, in, and
0: and in- Chicago was the first northern city to have the. Council passed an open housing law, and the final vote and in those days, there were real Republicans in the city council wasn 't like it is today, all democratic mm-hmm. there were real Republicans. It passed by one vote, and the alderman who cast it was from an all white rather ethnic ward on the south side and had to not run again, and they made him a judge uh, because he took a tough really the toughest vote you could take in those days as i said it was the first northern city with an open housing uh, so in
1: 68 when the city i think it was 68 when uh, there were fires and right martin arson. luther King, uh,
0: after martin luther king's assassination was the worst of the riots in the city and and what 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 did your father it bro- it, it really um it was unbelievably uh, difficult because you know 68 we had the uh you, you. It was a very difficult period for the country, I think one of the worst years in the history of the yeah. country. And in Chicago, you had in April the Martin Luther King assassination and then the riots where the entire west side, quite frankly, of Chicago, most of the west side is, didn't recover for another 40 years, almost 35 years. Um, and he couldn't believe that such damage was done to the city um, to the point where... You know, they had to call in the federal troops. The last time federal troops were called into a domestic uh, situation, and Congress then enacted law. It can never happen again. But it was really tough. It was tough to see the city burning. The police. Some tell me, he went up to a high rise and looked went on a the... helicopter, yeah, and cried, um, because it was just devastating. If you saw what was going on in the West Side, and they they couldn't stop it. Uh, obviously, his order "shoot to kill." You know, you can interpret it different ways. The truth is, the violence did slow down after that. His attitude was: if somebody's throwing a Molotov cocktail in a building where somebody's living in it, that's a potential murderer, and that person should. Yeah, but
1: that phrase came Yes, to, that was came to, came to identify him. in yes. Yes. in history, in right. certain And then ways.
0: you had the convention four months later. Where nobody was killed at the Republican convention the same year in Miami, six people were killed in adjacent riots in, in Liberty City near in Miami. So that was a pretty bad year for yeah. him. Very difficult year yeah. in many ways. Yeah. Uh, even though he went on to win two more elections, it was a very difficult year.
1: You... Uh you decided you, – you went to law school. Now, in the, in the 70s, you still – you said you became more aware later in life yeah. what it meant to be the son of uh, – and you guys came under all kinds of scrutiny uh, at the time. I guess you and your brother started an insurance business yeah, or something. right, right. Yeah. And we
0: took a lot of heat for that. My brother Rich got stopped for going through a stop sign. It was on the front page of all the papers. So suddenly you felt the difference in the n- newer sort of – media world we were in. Um, so there was a lot of sort of, you better just watch what you do.
1: Mike Royko, the famous is sort of columnist, uh, the late columnist uh, in the city who I mentioned earlier, wrote a column at that time. And he told me the story later. He told me, it actually, admiringly of you, that uh, he had written a column saying that uh, the Daily Boys weren't smart enough to tie their own shoes, and that... Uh, you had called him and said, Mike, I don't want you to worry about it because we're all wearing loafers right. now. Right, I did. And he <laughs> said, it was the worst thing anybody ever did to me because it was totally disarming. Right. He said, uh, willing to make fun of himself. And
0: But you know, I we learned a lot of that from my dad who used to, he, he didn't hold a grudge. He was tough and he had a lot of battles in his life, political. But, but he didn't hold a grudge and he understood the you know, as I said, he had a lot of difficult times with the media. But he understood they had a role and um as did my mother, and years later when Rico was pretty friendly to my brother Rich as he was running, my mother and he I remember at Rich's the party the night he got sworn in as mayor there was Mike Rico dancing with his wife, and my is talking to him. And I'm like, holy, oh, the world has really changed. So. You, uh,
1: there's a your mother is a a, a sainted figure <laughs> in the history of the city, beloved. Um, she, uh, there was a story that she had. Royko's book removed mm-hmm. from the local grocery store in Bridgeport yes. uh, when Boss was published. True.
0: <laughs> she shopped there all the time and she went in. They had a, in those days, they had a stand of books for sale and saw it and went right to the general manager, the manager of the store, and said, This is outrageous. This is terrible. <laughs> Obviously, he yanked the book off the, <laughs> off the and that helped Mike Ryko because it was great. It added to the whole think of it, probably helped him with the sales and he appreciated that. Uh, <laughs> she, um, but she she, knew she would, but she, in her mind and in her life that was the right thing to do. She was defending her husband.
1: She also, she didn't exercise a lot. She didn't have a big political voice in the city, but there was one story about uh, the public library here downtown when the public li- uh, your dad was considering tearing down the public library, which is a beautiful old edifice, and she Apparently said somewhere publicly that she thought that wasn't necessarily a good idea. Right.
0: He, and he really, they were all set to announce big plans to, to <laughs> knock it down and put a whole high rise up right on Michigan and Randolph. And someplace, somebody, <laughs> one reporter asked her about it and she thought that was a terrible idea and it shouldn't have it. And my dad killed it. That was the end of it. <laughs> and, uh, and it survived and It's a beautiful. It's the, old, now it's a Chicago yeah, cultural yeah, uh, yeah, it's a center.
1: Beautiful. It's a beautiful building yeah. right across from. Millennium Park, which your brother Rich right. was instrumental in building right. when he – so you – when he was mayor, you uh, uh, you became involved in politics in the 70s. You were involved with the Carter people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you knew that this is – you You wanted to be engaged and, and at a national level.
0: Yeah, I – you know, kind of Rich was – and my brother John were very local and I said, well – and I always had the interest in, in Washington and national politics and so I – helped Jimmy Carter, and I was kind of the link from my dad to the Carter campaign in 76, and the people who ran it, and then off in 80, or 80 I ran Rich's campaign for state's attorney, so it didn't get that heavily involved in the president. Although you
1: did, in a sense, and we'll talk about that yeah. in a second. So your your dad died, I remember this because I was a young reporter, and I got thrust into um in fact, they sent me down to the 11th Ward Democratic headquarters in Bridgeport. Mm-hmm. Your father, of course, was the committeeman of the 11th Ward because that you had to be. You he was elected chairman as the committeeman of the 11th Ward, and so the question was, would the 11th Ward then elect Rich Daly, his son, your brother, to mm-hmm. be his successor? And uh, I think Morgan Finley was a county official, and there was some talk that he was going to. Yeah. Ch- Make my dad died
0: it. on a Monday and he was buried on a Wednesday. And Rich um, said, Well, you know, we'll wait till Monday to have a committeeman's meeting. And uh, I mean, a preaching captain's meeting to elect a new committeeman. And my mother said, Rich, have it right away. Don't <laughs> delay. And he was like, No, Ma, you know, everybody's getting over the sudden, a very sudden death of dad. And so she um, had learned a few things. Yeah, huh? she had learned a few things. And within. Day of his burial, somebody walked into him and said, I just got a call from a preaching captain, and they're trying to put this together for Buddy Finley to replace. Who was a dad. member
1: of the organization, a county right. official. A county Your dad official? made him a right. county official.
0: And so Rich called the meeting the next day of the captains and they elected Rich and Buddy Finley moved out of the ward and moved to the suburbs. To suburbs, yes. <laughs> so.
1: Yeah, I remember Finley coming out very grim. I was a re- young reporter standing out there and he just said sort of tersely, uh, Richard Daly is the new... Committeeman of the 11th Ward, it was unanimous, and he walked off. <laughs> so, uh,
0: yeah. Uh, but but, but just told my mother, who was an integral part of my father's politics from the very beginning, and his campaigns um, had a very good sense about politics. I bet you. you
1: uh, and and then Rich. Uh, d- your dad died. He he was the uh, still a state senator, but now he's a state senator, sort of on his own. It was kind of a sinker, swim situation. There was an interim mayor, Mike Belanda, came from your ward. Nice, earnest guy, terrible politician, right. and he gets beaten by Jane Byrne. This was I covered this campaign. This was my big opening as a political reporter at the Tribune. Who's a reformer? Or so she says as she Mm -hmm. runs that way, and she is intent on snuffing out the Dailies as a political force because she obviously feared that, you know, Richard M. Daly would come back and try and reclaim the office, Uh, and so all the levers that a mayor has—patronage and all of that—aimed against you guys, and and he decides to run for. to everybody's surprise, for prosecutor here, nobody thought of him as much of a lawyer.
0: Yeah, he uh, probably well, had never been in a courtroom. <laughs> that didn't matter. <laughs>
1: so, what made you guys? make He, that-
0: I, I, the expectation was he was going to run against this Buddy Finley guy because there were a bunch of patronage jobs there, and Rich had no interest in that. So, and, and really, um, so we kept he kept it very quiet that he was going to run for state's attorney. There was slate making, and there was a very popular, well liked Republican state's attorney at the time who had been there for quite a long time. So Rich walked into slate making. and announced he was running for state's attorney, which shocked case, yeah. everybody. Yeah, and because nobody else. Then the powers that be, Jane Byrne and the, the other committeemen who were going to try to stop Rich, then ran out and got Eddie Burke and who's a him. alderman, was alderman, uh, connected it was close alderman to Rich. Used to mm-hmm. go to school with him in law school and knew with your brother, Rich, yeah, with yeah. my brother Rich. And so he, they slated him. Rich beat him in the primary and then beat Bernie Kerry by 16,000 votes. But, in but a this is where election. I wanted to go yeah. with
1: this. That primary got intertwined with the presidential primary because Ted Kennedy was running for president. And Jane Byrne had first intimated she was going to be for President Carter. And then two weeks later switched to <laughs> Ted Kennedy. And you guys were very much hooked up with President Carter. So this primary, right. it became like the Carter Daily Right.
0: Slate. Right. In the Vers- pl- Yeah. It was and and uh not she just Jane Byrne didn't intimate. She told Carter she was for him, and then she and when the Carter people told me that I said, Oh don't, don't worry about it, she's not gonna be with you. That's, <laughs> that's, forget it. She will be with Kennedy and she was. But it became um a proxy you know b- both sides. It was us and, and Carter versus uh Kennedy and Byrne and and the Republic and the Republican candidate uh, it was crazy. It was the, like the entire organization that my dad ran for all those years was against his son uh, in order to help a Republican in an election and, and Reagan indirectly. Reagan won the county in a landslide, won won the, the election in a landslide. Rich won barely and then went on to be state's attorney for eight years until he ran for mayor. Had they wrapped their arms around him, this was the big mistake they made, had they endorsed him, and all at least gone through the motions of being for him, there's no way Rich Daly would have beat Bernie Kerry in the general election.
1: You, in, in 83, he ran for mayor uh, against Jane Byrne. The, you know, she, in, 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 in fact, created the race that she always feared. And then Harold Washington jumped in, <laughs> yeah. uh, an African-American congressman, and won the race. Right. Did you see that coming? Well,
0: we, we, saw, we didn't see Her- – Harold had been pretty clear saying he wouldn't run. And they told Rich that privately, but he said he put he said I put out these conditions. I yeah. got to register two hundred thousand people. Raise right, X they'll never make dollars. it. They'll never do, do He's it.
1: Telling everybody that they
0: did it, and all of a sudden he runs. And we felt pretty early on. Rich was strong. I do remember the poll in nineteen in nineteen eighty two, and Rich hated polls. Hated to talk about them, as you know. So the pollster was there, and Rich was beating Jane Byrne by enormous amount and basically the pollster said he can't lose this i can't t- i can't say what rich said to the guy and got up and left and never came <laughs> it's back to a podcast to poll- <laughs> you can say whatever you want <laughs> never came back to a polling meeting ever um but but you could feel a turn when burn got stronger she went heavy on the race and i remember about two weeks out we had a poll come back and the only way you could you quite frankly in a political way the only way you could win was to push her way down and he had to do that by going very white against her you know to try to consolidate the white vote um versus harold who obviously was overwhelmingly popular in the african-american community and rich we knew right there that was the end of the campaign and he then because he tried to stay above everything uh, and then he began to drop rather quickly.
1: Um, After that race, there was an incident in a toy store in Bridgeport yeah. <laughs> with him, and uh, Rich was there with his son, yeah. he was, Patrick, and, he, yeah. and and someone came up and started screaming at him about having made it. I'm sure the language is also yeah. not what you would want to repeat. Right, but right.
0: So it was pretty deep. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah he would, they figured, uh, they being the sort of white political characters, uh, Byrne Ber- and the rest of them, figured Rich was finished. Uh, he couldn't get reelected. The white voters would hold it against him. Black voters would hold it against him for running against Harold Washington. A guy jumped him in the toy store and he's rolling around on the floor. Now he's the state's attorney at the time. He had no bodyguards. <laughs> had his kids yelling at him. Hit him, dad. Rich is <laughs> you know, like, I'm 40, 35 or 40 years old, rolling around a toy store on Halston Street with some goofball.
1: But when he decided to run for mayor again in 89, I mean, you and I, We went. uh, I worked for him in that race. We went over to see him and his wife Maggie, and uh, he apparently had neglected to tell her that he was planning to run. (laughs) What we were there for? (laughs) Yeah. And uh, but her admonition to us was, if this is going to be about race, because there was a African American mayor who had replaced Washington who had died, uh, I, I don't want anything. I don't want any part of that. And that was a big.
0: Yeah, thing. she was very frightened of that race getting back into what at the end of the eighty-three race it became very race-oriented, and then the politics in Chicago, as you know, during that period from eighty-three to through Harold's death and up to the election in eighty-nine, was all about race, and, yeah, yeah, and she really wanted did. part of it. And, but Rich had done a state's attorney in eighty-four and eighty-eight had gotten overwhelming support from the African American community um and the white community so that the the expectation after he cre- helped elect Harold in some people's mm-hmm. mind uh, was never fulfilled because he got even stronger as it went on. And he very much stayed out of politics was state's attorney, um, had a good office, good reputation, uh, honesty and and competent people and and that set him up with the African American uh, vote uh, even though he didn't get much in '89. Um, We're going to take another yep. short
1: break, and we'll be right back with Bill Daley. There's so much to talk about, but I, I there's like we've got decades of history that I want to cover, and uh, and in your history, uh, I'll ask one more question about your brother Rich and your father, and that is, they each served as mayor of Chicago for about the same amount of time. I think your dad, 22 years. I think your brother, 23. Rich, 22. My dad, 21. All right. I was close. Yeah. Um, how would you compare them?
0: They were, they were very similar in, in two ways. One, that's all they wanted to be. I remember when I became Secretary of Commerce, I thought it was a pretty important job. Rich was like, why are you going there? Why are you <laughs> going to do that? <laughs> well, you're chief is after the president. <laughs> you know, but so that's all they wanted to be. And that helped them do a better job because they were never about the next job they were going to go for. And so that, I, I really believe that gave them an enormous ability uh, to make decisions what was best for the city. Uh, and not worry about the political career, where they may go next, yeah. number one. Number
1: two— So not worrying about running statewide. Statewide or, yeah. or nat- what was right, going right, on nationally. Right.
0: Rich didn't, you know, he really didn't care who was president or whatever, <laughs> and as long as he was on fairly good terms with them, it wasn't as though he focused on that in any way, shape, or form, or being in the Senate or running for governor, God forbid, something like a meaningless job like that compared to the mayor of Chicago. Uh, second of all, they really knew the city. I mean, Rich knew the neighborhoods, yeah. knew the blocks. He was like my dad. You'd ride down, if you were in the car with them, they'd be writing down a pothole. I remember one day my dad, we were going down Ashland Avenue, and I'm like in high school, and we hit a big pothole. It was in this limousine. And I don't know what he was doing, but he said, call whoever the deputy mayor was at the time, and tell him about this pothole. And I'm like a kid in high school. I <laughs> call the deputy mayor. And on a car phone, they had a phone in a car, not a cell phone, obviously. And, you know, said we just hit a big pothole in uh, on Ashland Avenue, and he thinks somebody ought to get out here and fix it. So they were totally focused on and understood the city and the yin and yang of the different neighborhoods, the feel in the neighborhoods, new people. And so those two things were very similar. Difference was, obviously, my dad had the political organization to depend on and came up through that rich came in a different way and the politics of it for rich um he wasn't burdened by the old system um matter of fact he went around that old system as we talked about earlier so so they were personality wise on social issues though uh,
1: they were i mean rich daly uh marched in the Gay Pride Parade. Right. He was uh, uh, he. You know he worked hard on the relationship with the African American oh. community in ways that were different than your dad. Yep. You said you know. Uh,
0: but it was he he. Uh, my dad did those things probably more because they were smart politics to do, um, even though you know he can, he, he he had enormous empathy for people who were in trouble i remember in our neighborhood we had a lot of guys who went to prison people with alcohol problems all that he was he was never judgmental about that um and and enriched in a different in different issues around as you said gay rights and issues like that where people wouldn't expect daly's kid I to tell you a funny story in that in 2004 um, when Gavin Newsom, the mayor of San Francisco, was giving marriage license uh, to, to uh, people of the same sex to marry, uh, it became a very big issue in the presidential campaign of Kerry, and it was a big issue in the congressional campaign. Uh, Barney Frank called me one day, and Barney Frank, uh, gay congressman, great guy, said, can you do me a favor? I said, what? He said, can you talk to Rich about not being so strong about gay marriage? I said, Well he said, you know, that this is causing us problems with a lot of congressional campaigns because it was still a, it was very early on in the whole discussion. So he was out in front of it. He was way out in front of it. And yeah. I said, Well, Bernie, I'll talk to him, but I you know, I don't think this is gonna go anywhere. So I called him and Rich was like, i ah, forget it. He said, No, he said, This is ridiculous. I don't know what they're all not <laughs> talking about it for and so so Rich felt strongly uh, uh on a lot of the issues that um one one would not think, oh, Mayor Daley's kid and somebody who you know grew up where he grew up wouldn't. The other either. thing
1: was that uh, they both were authentic. No one would accuse either of them of being inauthentic, and that seems like right. something that right. people miss in politics uh, today. So you mentioned that you were Secretary of, of Commerce before you became Secretary of Commerce under uh, President Clinton. You helped shepherd the NAFTA. Uh, Law right. through uh, through the Senate. Um, looking looking back now and looking at where we are on this uh, trade issue, uh, you know there were great concerns then about uh, the trade offs, mm-hmm. and and uh, and we've seen the trade offs, um, and now. You have a president who has withdrawn the country from uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, from the uh, treat, uh, from the agreement that was being negotiated with Europe. Uh, make the case. Yeah.
0: Well, again, this is 25 years almost, so the world was very different. Bill Clinton, who I believe really felt for the average working person and understood the sort of needs of people believed it was a big part of getting the U S economy moving in the nineties, you know, um, and NAFTA was a piece of that. And it was also a piece to get our North America together, Canada, Mexico, and try to be one block in many ways. Um, so, so he was well motivated. My role was to try to help pass it through Congress. Um, and and but to Clinton, it was an integral part of the economic revival of The and seeing globalization happening. Now, m- maybe what we misjudged was you had a third world nation, basically Mexico at the time and the U.S., a very developed nation doing a trade agreement. There was just too much disparity between the two. It was the first time it had ever been done. So there were a lot of issues around it. We underestimated the the impact on jobs. At the same time, you had technology changing jobs and the ability to for a company to put a plant anywhere in the world and build it where in the past, that was very difficult to do. So all of this kind of came together and who got squeezed at that was small town America and
1: Towns around Illinois. Yeah, around Illinois. And, uh, and, and not just Illinois, but around the Chicago area. Yeah,
0: and, and and then you had the boom in the 90s, and I was Commerce Secretary then in the late 90s, and that enormous boom globally, boom globally of of explosion of technology and the opening of of countries like China and others over a very short period to being part of a global economy, again, pushing down wages, pushing down as – but it was well motivated i don't think especially as a democrat we would sign on board to keeping much of the world in poverty and and not giving them a chance to have a middle class the problem is when you give other parts of the world the chance at being creating a middle class that gets lost somewhere and that affects other places and we were the economy of the world so if there was going to be an impact on other parts of the world growing we would suffer in many ways and we did was it the right thing to do i think it was the right thing to do at the time absolutely the problem is it has not been it was not updated over the 25 years and and congress democrat and republican didn't take actions over those periods to address the problems uh, of the diminution in manufacturing, um, the wage stagnation that was going on in the country, the enormous wealth that was being created. Um, And and so there was, so that NAFTA and trade is is the uh, cause in many people's minds of all of this wage disparity and income inequality. And that's just not true. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this world we're in, global world we're in, and that's not going to change. Um, everybody can't just be out for themselves, and and especially a country that believes in openness, open trade. Our economy grew over those years in the 20th century by being open to with low tariffs for goods to come into the United States, and that helped our economy, helped it grow. Um, welcoming of people from around the world helped our growth of our trade. Presumably technology.
1: the notion of these treaties is to lower tariffs around the world for our product.
0: Right. Now, there's a lot of other barriers, and that we weren't aggressive enough on, to be frank with you. I remember when I was Commerce Secretary, I went to Japan, and I think they told me there was one Cadillac in all of Japan. But GM then was not making right-sided uh, wheels. You know the, the, your, your Drivers in, in Japan sit on the right side. GM wasn't making them. So they were trying to sell cars that nobody was going to buy. Mm-hmm. But there, we underestimated and weren't aggressive enough at the other barriers other than tariffs in these countries that kept U.S. products out.
1: Where do you think we are now on trade? The presence withdrawn from the TPP wants to renegotiate
0: NAFTA, which you said needs updating. Mm-hmm. Look, I think you can improve NAFTA. Uh, Can you bring back all those, quote, jobs that supposedly went overseas? Absolutely not. It's ridiculous. Probably the vast majority of them at this stage are because of technology and because there's a middle class in those countries that manufacturers now want to be closer to the sale of those things. I think it's going to be a long period before you see uh, an aggressiveness around trade or a new trade agenda by a president. And by the political and what the is the impact parties. of that? I think it has a. It, it makes it hard for us to have the economic growth that we want. Just as if you limit Im- immigration, it's going to slow down the growth opportunities. I believe the same thing about trade, um, but I think there is a there is a strong consensus on both parties to stay away from trade, and that's that will make it difficult to have four percent growth or three percent growth uh, in the U.S. Now, I did see that President Trump's uh, representatives are talking about trying to reestablish a TPP in a different way um, uh, you know and again i I look at the President Obama would not do something in my opinion that would crater opportunities for middle class and lower class. It was his whole career was about and he felt very st- was about trying to help those uh, people uh, and and I, I think he saw the benefit of TPP long term Albeit very difficult politically, you um,
1: you you work for two presidents. Compare them, uh, Barack Obama and Bill Clinton.
0: Very different personalities. I, I you know, you have to. Barack Obama accomplished something that nobody, I think, very few people. Donald Trump's election. Fine people said it could never happen, but he came over in a very short period, an entire system. With all sorts of challenges that nobody else has ever had, obviously starting on first with his race, so his political talent at seeing the opportunity and the timing, obviously with your guidance, the opportunity that was presented in in that at that period was, and then take the risk of doing it was an unbelievable decision. Bill Clinton's was he was much more the retail. Sort of politician on the ground, hugging people, loving people, over a long period. He was governor elected in 1978, so he had a very long career before he actually um, ran for president in '92. Personality-wise, both very smart people, but they came from from different systems, and that that affected them um, in in real ways.
1: If, different systems in that. Uh- Clinton's th- thought in terms of well he was a governor politician. he was a retail
0: politician mm-hmm. in a very southern conservative state mm-hmm. um, had to manage that, understood the world because he used to do trade missions and he had companies that wanted to sell their goods around the world and so he he and he he spent a long time sort of preparing for that presidential race. I think President Obama obviously short Senate ca- uh, mm-hmm. career made the decision. One of the great establishment uh, Mm -hmm. sort of uh, candidates, Hillary Clinton in 08 and pulled off uh, an unbelievable upset, but different also in their style. Bill Clinton was very much in your face, sort of personal retail, as you say. Uh, Barack Obama was one of the smartest people I've met, Um, you know, was viewed sort of uh, in many ways his his ability to speak and move a crowd and move the sort of uh, political system um, was probably unparalleled of any of the people other than maybe Jack Kennedy back in 1960. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so and, it, and and the times, Bill Clinton and the, one of the stark differences I saw when I got when I was with Bill Clinton in the 90s, you know, it wasn't like everybody held hands and loved each other. They did impeach him, the Republicans. But the nastiness and the tenor, the tone in Washington, ten years later when I came back with President Obama, was shocking to me. How mean, nasty, you know, it was on both sides. You know, you couldn't be seen with a Republican if you were a Democrat, or you there were questions. What are you doing um, uh, with with that person? You know, I mean. I mean I had dinner with John Boehner the first week I was there because I knew John Boehner. And I kind of enjoyed his company, frankly. He had a couple of glasses of mm-hmm. wine. He'd walk out every 10 minutes to have a cigarette. And leadership on the Democratic side let the White House know like the next day that they were upset because I had had dinner with John Boehner before I had had dinner with them. And I was like, well, you know, this is crazy.
1: You were a link to maybe one of the most famous pictures of the Obama presidency during the raid that brought down Osama bin Laden. Talk about that
0: picture and yeah. what led up to it. Well, the first day I was at the White House when they did the presidential briefing, Leon Panetta was there. And I knew Leon Panetta for a long time. He was head of the CIA at that time. And I thought, this is nice of Leon to come on my first day here to <laughs> brief the president. Well, he was there to talk about this compound in Abbottabad and how they had been watching it, and they thought there was a high-value target. That was in January, you know, and then that – Every couple of weeks, we'd have another meeting and led up to the, the decision by the president. It, what was remarkable about that was to watch the president's leadership and how he managed that. Um, you know, and, and it came down to a gut decision on his part, and there was disagreement of whether it should be done and whether Osama bin Laden was really there. But he went through a long process. A matter of fact, it got to the point where he was in the Situation Room so often, and we're keeping this, obviously, very secret. Um, I was concerned because the president was spending so much time in the Situation Room. And as you know, when the president's there, everybody in the building knows he's there. So it would be hard that people were not wondering what's going on here because he's down there so much. And um, But that day was just very, very... Uh, uh, stressful we um i getting ready to go to to um church that morning i said i better go to church and and i I didn't know if, if i should come in a pair of jeans like a sunday or or but I wore a coat and tie, and I think I'm the only one in the picture with a coat and tie on because I figured if my mother was alive and, <laughs> and she saw me at the White House, not in a coat and tie, I'd be in deep trouble. But I figured one way or the other, this is an important day. Either we're going to get Osama Bin Laden or this is going to be a very bad day for the president, so I better, we better be prepared. But, but it, well, to watch his driving that process um, over those three months or so, Uh, was really remarkable and culminated in uh, probably one of the, uh, for me, the highlight of uh, my uh, professional career.
1: I don't want to lead you into an invidious comparison, but I can't leave without asking you what your observations are of the process that you see in the White House now and of the way this president is operating. Well, you
0: know, White Houses reflect the person at the top and the chaos or perceived chaos or... Lack of competence um, in my opinion reflects more about Donald Trump than anything else, so it doesn't surprise me um, they really do reflect the quality of the people reflect the president and and I would say right now, the people that are there except for, for with a few exceptions, pretty much are the sort of people that Donald Trump attracted in his business career uh, and on his campaign, and the chaos all starts at the top or the confusion or the it would be a very difficult place if you come from a different um, expectation from a president uh, to be to be in that sort of setting. I, I've never seen anything like this in a business setting, much less a White House or any major organization. It's very reflective of somebody who ran a small business, basically, which is what it was, and ran it as a dictator. And I mean, that's that's what he ran his real estate business on. Very successful, made a lot of money. Great, um, but making a lot of money doesn't necessarily mean you're
1: smart. And what do you, what you? Let Let me just ask you this, and 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 leave it here. You're you've lived a lot of history, more than almost anybody I know. Uh, I know how much you uh, were raised to appreciate institutions. I think your dad was. One of the last people who would go and meet Richard Nixon at the right. airport, even right. when he was because he said he's the President of the United states and right. uh, what are your what are your concerns as we sit here today about this president and and the country
0: well i think our our i think oftentimes you know people say, "Oh, our politics is so nasty and this is terrible I think it may reflect our society more than we like to admit and we like to think and they should be our politicians our leaders our political leaders our religious leaders whatever should be better than the rest of us but but maybe he reflects more of us today it's oftentimes the crassness and nastiness i mean this is a man who ran around saying that president obama wasn't born in in the us and then he feigns being shocked at the nastiness that's going on in politics so Maybe it's this is a difficult, more difficult thing. Maybe he's more reflective in the sort of politics the world we're in, the nastiness, the crassness, the violence. We saw the assassination attempt on uh, Republican members two weeks ago. First day I was in, at the White House um, or the day before I was even sworn in. Gabby Gifford was uh, mm-hmm. killed, was shot at and, and wounded, and other people were killed that day. So this nastiness and the crassness that you see in politics maybe were more reflective of our society, and Donald Trump understood that maybe better than many, and his sort of outrageousness reflects reality TV or the, the politics of today, and he got that before anybody else maybe wanted to act on that. Do, do you for, think
1: a do you think a leader can
0: help change that? Absolutely, I think. Uh, I, I and I think there will be either a at some point either in three. I, I personally do not believe he runs again, but the, I feel mm-hmm. strong in that. The next president, I think, will be have to be very different, and will have to bring a calmness to the country and a sort of we can all move. I'm not saying that everybody's going to sit around and hold hands and sing Kumbaya, but. But no country can stay at this level of sort of craziness um, uh, for for very long. Um, and I think the next president, whoever he or she would be, will have a very different tone.
1: Bill Daly, appreciate your long friendship. And uh, I, as I said, I could talk to you for hours, and I probably will, but just not on this podcast. <laughs> Thanks, David. Thanks so much. Appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.